Well, good afternoon, ladies. I cannot believe this is our last study, our last night, I mean, um, in this study of Ephesians. This epistle has blessed me, as I pray it has each one of you. So let's take a minute to look back on the entire book as we conclude it tonight. This is a letter from Paul to the church in Ephesus and was also probably a circular letter that other churches received as well. Ephesus was a major important city in Western Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. There was lots of trade and different cultures there. Paul most likely wrote this around the time he wrote Colossians, while he was imprisoned in Rome. The first half of the book was focused on theology and doctrine, and the second half was focused on the practical and application. We spent time talking about our blessings in Christ, our experience of salvation and the power that provides us when we are in Christ, and the growing knowledge and strength through the Holy Spirit. Then we moved to Paul exhorting us to walk worthy in our life in Christ. We spoke about Christian conduct in our church unity, our daily walk, our domestic duties, and when faced with the conflict of war, not with flesh, but with spiritual forces. I think it's pretty obvious the spirit of this generation is independence. This is especially true here in America. Our founding document is the Declaration of Independence, which I actually spent some time teaching Bella about this year in her schooling. In that document, we declared our independence from the tyranny of England that our founding fathers felt was imposed upon them in the colonies. Of course, that document reflected a spirit of independence, and it was paid for by the blood of our forefathers, <clears throat> excuse me, who fought a war of independence. Our independence in this country is a prized possession, as it should be. But the problem comes when we misapply that spirit of independence to the church. While the spirit of the generation is independence, the nature of the church is interdependence, as we are mutually reliant on each other and on Christ. The church is a community, a new society. It is the community of the king. And the church universal always finds its expression in the church local, which is a body of believers called out of the world and into spiritual fellowship, based on the life of Jesus Christ within. It is not one person or a group of leaders. It is every believer called to be a part of that local church. As such, it must work through an interdependence of all of its members if it is to work successfully. Independence will tend to erode the fellowship, but learning to depend upon one another will cause the fellowship to grow, both in quality and quantity. The bottom line is this. We need each other. I need what you have in Christ, and you need what I have in Christ. Union Lake Baptist Church relies on your spiritual gifts and blessings. The community is key. God designed the church to bring together people of different backgrounds, cultures, races, situations, gifts, talents, and life so that we can learn from each other and grow together. We were all brought here to Union Lake Baptist Church for us to live together as Christians and walk alongside each other. We are united by our common faith in Jesus Christ, whom we are totally dependent on, but we are also dependent upon one another in order to persevere to the end. We must always remember to encourage one another and to remind each other of what Christ has done for us and to support the church in the ways God has called us each to do. So let's take a moment to reflect on Paul's circumstances as he writes this letter. He was in prison in Rome, chained to a guard. 
He was growing old, and his health was probably not that great. From the book of Philippians written during the same imprisonment, we learned that fellow Christians in Rome were attacking Paul. Yet Paul is writing this letter asking for boldness and proclaiming the gospel, as we heard in Sherry's lesson last week. Not for his health, not for a change in his circumstances, or for an end to his personal suffering. He's writing this letter to the young church of Ephesus to encourage their walk, to comfort their worries, to urge their unity in Christ, and to pray they grow in their faith. As we look to our section today in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 21 to 24, Paul has reached the end of his letter, a letter which he has been dictating. Imagine, if you will, for a minute, Paul taking the pen from his scribe and writing out the ending on his own with all the emotion and brotherly love you can feel just from reading this epistle. Mm -hmm. Paul writing an authenticating sentence or two in his own handwriting was not uncommon. Think of Galatians chapter 6, verse 11, where he states, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. In Colossians 4.18, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Perhaps he has even been dictating this to Tychicus that he mentions here affectionately by name, stating, Now, so that you also may know about my circumstances as to what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will make everything known to you. Tychicus was a native of Asia, as we learn in Acts 24. Luke not only describes him as Asian, but also brackets him with Trophimus, whom he later calls an Ephesian in Acts 21-29. So Tychicus may have come from Ephesus as well. Paul sent him there during his second imprisonment in Rome, and reading between the lines of Ephesian and Colossian letters, Paul seems to assume that his readers know him already. What is clear, whether Tychicus was Paul's scribe or not, is that Paul entrusts the letter to him to deliver, together with the Colossian letter based on Colossians 4, verse 7 through 8, which is a parallel passage of this one. Paul evidently has complete confidence in his younger colleague and friend. A carrier service existed for official mail, but private letters were carried by private messengers or was, were sent with people known to be traveling to the intended destination. The closer the relationship between the letter carrier and the sender, the more the former would be expected to give additional information. Beloved brother, Paul calls him here, and also faithful minister in the Lord. He will rely on him not only to deliver the letter safely, but also to supplement the message with some personal news. Of course, sending Tychicus meant that Paul would be deprived of this dear brother's presence. His words about him here show how much he appreciates this friend and man of God. This description given for Tychicus here is used for some of Paul's other close helpers. We think of Timothy in 1 Thessalonians 3, where Paul states, And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. <clears throat> Both Tychicus and the readers are called brothers here. Tychicus in verse 21, and the readers in the second section in verse 23. These are the only two occurrences of this word in the letter, which is a common description by Paul for his fellow workers and Christian friends. This word underscores the bond and sense of family these early Christians felt. 
Paul is confident that Tychicus is a trustworthy messenger and wants the Ephesians to trust his report. As commentator Bach states it, finding a faithful messenger to deliver a letter was sometimes a challenge in the ancient world. Cicero, in letter to Atticus, spoke of his hesitancy to send an epistle for lack of a trustworthy courier. Further, we read in verse 22, I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are. The pronoun we here is surprising, as up to this point, Paul has not mentioned anyone else with him. The we here may be referring to Paul and Tychicus, but it may also and more likely be referring to Paul and anyone else associated on the mission with him. So three times now, Paul restates his purpose that Tychicus will bring his readers information on Paul's mission and on everything concerning Paul and how he is doing. This is to cover all the news on Paul, including a more positive perspective on his imprisonment. Paul earlier mentioned that the Ephesians were discouraged about his situation in chapter 3, verse 13, but he does not want them to remain there. It is suggested by commentators that something very similar to Philippians chapter 1, verse 12 to 18 may reflect the direction of this reassurance. So let's turn there and read it just for a minute. Let it sink in. <clears throat> it states, um, it's... Philippians chapter 1, verse 12 through 18. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Furthermore, he states here, um, back to Ephesians, that he is also sending Tychicus, that he may encourage your hearts. Or in the New American Standard Bible, it states, comfort your hearts. In the commentary expositors, it states the verb used here was also used in chapter 4, verse 1, to urge his readers to live lives worthy of their Christian calling. Perhaps there is an element of that here as well. Paul has spent the better part of three chapters exhorting the Ephesians on life in Christ and Christian conduct. Paul wants their hearts to be on the right track. Think about Ephesians chapter 1 verse 18 when Paul is praying for the Ephesians and he prays, You will have the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Think about chapter 3, verse 17 through 18, when Paul is again praying for his beloved brothers, and he says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of Christ's love. And finally, think about chapter 5, verse 18 through 19, when Paul is urging them to walk carefully, and he says, 
Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. At the beginning of this letter, Paul called the readers the faithful in Christ Jesus. And here, Paul likewise describes Tychicus as a faithful servant in the Lord. This underlines both the importance of faithfulness and being in Christ, which we have seen throughout the entire letter. God bestows a blessing to his people who are united to Christ by faith. We saw this in chapter 1, verse 3 through 14, when Paul, influenced by the Holy Spirit, sang his song of praise to God in his doxology, where we read about God's powerful, victorious work in Christ that is to the praise of his glory. We also have learned that God has predestined us for adoption, even though we are sinners, into his family with all the benefits of sons and daughters, including an eternally reconciled relationship with the Father and an inheritance of unimaginable worth, according to the riches of his grace. We also learn that the power God used to raise Christ is available to us today, as God is able to do far beyond what we ask or even think. The theology of life in Christ not only defines Paul's understanding of salvation and ethics, but it also describes how he sees his Christian friends. Tychicus here is serving the Lord with his gifts and blessings. He is living out his faithful mission. We have seen this idea before on God's election of his people set apart for his holy purposes, such as in chapter 1, verse 1 through 2 where we see Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, ministering to the saints in Ephesus, which is mentioned again in chapter 3 about Paul's work of preaching the mystery that both Jew and Gentile share in Christ's blessings. Also, we saw the urgency of the work mentioned in chapter 5, verse 15 through 16. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Furthermore, Paul's exposition of God's new society is not just a theological theory, for Paul and his readers are members of it themselves, so they must deepen their fellowship with one another. Some ways they are doing this is by praying for one another, which Paul has recorded two of his prayers for them in this book in chapters 1 and 3, before requesting their prayers for him in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 6. <clears throat> More ways... More ways are by his letter to them, and through Tychicus, who would both bring them information about Paul and seek to encourage them. Prayer, correspondence, and visits are still three major ways by which Christians and churches can enrich one another, and by doing so, contribute to the building up of the body of Christ. So I ask you, Christian sisters, how are you encouraging others? How are you contributing to the building up of the body of Christ? Some examples are to be faithful to the church family here. And by doing so, your faith gets reported to others, which will encourage those who hear of your faith. Be willing to go if you are called up on the mission. You don't need to have a gift in preaching or teaching to encourage a brother or sister in Christ on a mission trip or a visit to another church. Amen. Encourage others with your gifts and talents, with the ways God has called you to serve Christ. 
Tychicus wasn't going to preach to the Ephesians. He was being called on a long, hard trip to brothers and sisters in Christ to deliver a message and encourage and comfort their hearts. Reach out to one another, one-on-one outside of Sunday. Reach out to our missionaries in Japan, in Poland, in Arkansas, and more. Pray for them, of course, but also reach out to them and report to them on what is happening here at Union Lake Baptist Church. Encourage their hearts with how God is being faithful to you, to your family, to our church and our church family. Encourage their hearts with news on how people here are growing in their faith and how God is answering our prayers here. This encouragement of God's faithfulness can comfort and inspire each of us on our walk in Christ every day. As we move to our next section, the benediction for the brothers to be blessed with peace, love, and grace, it states, Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise, excuse me, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. I want you to think back to the opening of this letter in Ephesians 1, verse 1 through 2, which states, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus, and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We already mentioned that the statement of the Ephesians being faithful in Christ is an idea repeated here, but in regard to Tychicus. But now we also see both grace and peace being mentioned in both the opening and the ending greetings. It was customary at this time for correspondents to end their letters with a wish, usually a secular wish, even if the gods were invoked. But, or excuse me, usually a secular wish for the reader's health or happiness, even if gods were invoked. Paul sees no reason to abandon the convention altogether, but as he has Christianized the opening greetings, so now he Christianizes the final wish. Because what he writes is sort of a half wish and a half prayer, because the blessings he requests for his readers will come from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's first prayer wish is seen in verse 23. For peace be to the brothers and love with faith. Peace has been a central theme in this letter. I already mentioned how it was referenced in the opening, but furthermore, and most importantly, it was mentioned in the doctrinal section of this book. Paul explained how Jesus Christ is our peace, since he has broken down the dividing wall and created a single new humanity, so making peace, and how he then came and preached peace. This was seen in chapter 2, verse 14 through 17. Subsequently, in the functional section, in chapter 4, verse 3, Paul is urging the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of the call, and he states, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And chapter 6, verse 15 states, shoes as shoes for your feet, put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. We find peace only in Christ. The earthly idea of peace is a cheap one. When people think about what peace means to them, one person may think of lying in a hammock near the beach with the sun shining above and a gentle sea breeze reading their favorite book. Another may think of complete quietness in a park somewhere, not a soul in sight. But none of this is the peace that Ephesians is talking about, and none of this is the peace we should think about. Jesus Christ is our peace. Ephesians 2 tells us, Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And Romans 5, 
1 tells us, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What is more amazing, beautiful, encouraging, and restful than knowing our Savior has rescued us from the hostility and punishment of our sins to find forgiveness in the hands of our Father? Love has also been a major theme through Ephesians. Paul has urged the the readers to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. In chapter 5, verse 2, peace and love belong together. For peace is reconciliation, and love is its source and outflow. We saw that the Ephesians themselves were an example of that when Paul stated, Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. In chapter 1, verse 15. Then in chapter 4, verse 1 through 16, we were introduced to the self-sacrificial love that Jesus had for us and that we are called to have for one another. Subsequently, in the functional half of the book, Paul paints a beautiful scene of the church fellowship and the Christian home infused with love and peace, even though no peace treaty can ever be negotiated with the principalities and powers of evil. When he adds to love with the words, with faith, he is probably thinking of faith as a characteristic they already have, as previously mentioned, rather than as another one he wants them to be given. For faith they had. Paul's prayer was that love might be connected with it. So Paul closes with return to a brief mention of these virtues as he sends his prayer wishes for peace and love with a shared active faith. Virtues that are the fruit of the activity of God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ. This addresses to the brothers, not the usual you you see in Paul's letters. This is a hint that the letter was to circulate among both those known and those not known to Paul. Next, Paul's second prayer wish is for grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Through this expression, he characterizes his Christian readers in terms of their love for Christ. We had the picture of Christ's love for us in chapter 3 when we talked about the breadth, length, height, and depth of it. I shared a commentator's illustration of the picture of the cross being the most meaningful one to show us the love of Christ. The cross pointed in four ways, essentially in every direction, because Jesus' love is wide enough to include every person, long enough to last through all eternity, deep enough to reach the worst sinner, and high enough to take us to heaven. Here, Paul is now speaking about our love for Christ. The letter's final words in the Greek sentence mean simply in incorruption. Many commentators agree that it is a qualification of people's love for Christ, and so as a restriction to God's grace, which may complement those who love Christ with love undying or with unfailing love. However, God's grace does not depend on our undying love, but on his faithfulness to his promise. So other commentators argue that the phrase attaches rather on God's grace than to Christians' love. In this case, the prayer is that all who love our Lord Jesus Christ may experience God's grace in immortality or forever. One commentator stated, if this is correct, the epistle, which opened with a bold glance onto the eternal past, closes with the outlook of an immoral hope. This is a benediction that looks to eternity, given the reference to grace and the love it produces. Grace came from love. Chapter 2, verse 4 told us, and yields love. 
Paul closes this letter praying that the believers might have a continued experience of that which is their salvation. Grace is the core word of salvation. It was richly explained to us in chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, appreciating how God gifts his people life, enablement, and power. And it leads to peace, faith, and love, which is the theme of Paul's close to this letter. The transforming power of God's grace was seen in chapter 2, and that the spiritually dead are made spiritually alive. And the sons of disobedience transformed to his workmanship created for good works. And transforming those outside the covenant to those inside. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. We also saw in chapter 3 and 4 that we serve Christ by grace. In chapter 3 verse 2 through 8, Paul mentions that his ministry is by God's grace. We usually limit grace to God's gift of salvation, but grace is also the gift of ministry. This gift comes as a task because grace will always bring responsibility. It is never merely a privilege. All who have received grace should extend it to others. Grace connects us, enlists us, and empowers us. It will never allow for us to be passive for it is God's power at work in us. In chapter 4, verse 7 through 8, we learn that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. That each of us is gifted with different blessings and talents that are to be used for God's good plan. God's grace does not fade, and it is pure. It includes riches that never end, such as seen in chapter 2, verse 7. The sun will never set on such grace. The Christian life is lived by this grace. Romans 5 verse 19 states, For as by one man's disobedience, the many were sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Once we are saved, we do not stop needing God's grace. Commentator John Stott states, Here Paul has a wish, a prayer, that the members of God's new society may live in harmony as brothers and sisters in his family, at peace and in love with him and with each other, together with a recognition that only by his grace can this dream come true. The focus on the letter and here in the conclusion is on God and Christ as the source of the peace, love, faithfulness, and grace the readers and all of us need for life. This benediction reminds us that God provides what believers need through Christ, which is where this letter started in chapter 1, verse 3. Focus is also placed here on the human response with all who love our Lord. God and Christ are the substance of life. They are the willing source of what we need to live. And all God expects from us is a loving response. In many ways, this conclusion is an appropriation of the entire letter. God has provided all you need in Christ. Therefore, live worthy of that gift. Both the words about Tychicus and Paul's benediction show us how caring Paul was. Paul's view of his friends and his concern for them should be emulated. By viewing other Christians as in the Lord and by desiring God's gifts for them, we change the way we relate to them. We cannot extend God's peace and love honestly to people we do not care about. As we live together in this new society, in our church community, God breaks down the walls that divide us. In the church, he deals with selfishness. 
In the church, he deals with pride. In the church, he deals with all of the issues of isolation that keep us apart, that keep us from living as people created in his image for whom Christ died. As Paul closes this letter to the Ephesians, he reveals that interdependence. He was not working alone. He had help. There were many helpers who Paul worked with, without whom Paul's ministry could not have been nearly as effective. Paul knew that, and he acknowledged that by mentioning one of them by name here. And he also needed the Ephesians. He asks them to pray for him in chapter 6. He was encouraged by hearing about their faith, as he mentioned in chapter 1. And they all needed Paul. Paul was not a politician. He was a man of God. He didn't lie about his colleagues, describing them more than what they were. He never exaggerated them or their accomplishments. However, he did give them their due. This brief description of Tychicus was accurate. He was not only Paul's brother, but he was a beloved brother. He was not only a minister, he was a faithful minister. He was not only a servant, but was a fellow servant. If Paul were writing a letter to our church here, would he give a similar description of your Christian walk? How would Paul have ministered so effectively without the help of the other faithful believers? The church needs faithful men and women to minister effectively. It has been said, and I read this in a commentary, but I can't remember who. (laughs) There are two types of people who walk in the door of the church. One type thinks, here I am, church, meet all my needs. These folks often leave the church disappointed because the church didn't meet their needs. The other type walks in, looks around, and asks, where are the needs I can meet? These are the Lord's servants. They're not here to be served, but to serve Christ by serving his church. They care about others like Paul. Let us remember all that we have learned from Ephesians, both in the doctrinal section and practical parts. But most of all, let us remember that God has provided all we need in Christ. Therefore, we are to live worthy of that gift and to love God and each other as Christ loves us. We must also remember that the gospel is not, near, not only about getting into heaven. It is about life now as well as in eternity. It is as much about fellowship and encouraging one another as about initial conversion. As much about unity and community as about individual faith. And as much about living worthy of the gift Christ gives us and our forg- as about forgiveness. We are in a perfect union with Christ which has made us alive and will raise us up and seat us in the heavenly places with himself. None of these things are possible on our own. It is only through our union with Christ that any of this is attainable. Our identity is found in Christ. Our destiny is identified with Christ's destiny. Christ is the head of the redeemed family. Our acceptance with the Father is the acceptance Jesus has with the Father.